right, thank you. I'm going to open up to John chapter 10, and I'm going to be reading verse 1 down through verse 10, which I'm not mistaken is the VBS verse. So this is the gospel according to John chapter 10. Verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. A long time ago, the Apostle Paul wrote some letters to a group of Christians who lived in a city called Corinth. And in his first letter to the Corinthians we have in our Bible, in the 15th chapter, the Apostle Paul starts talking to them about the resurrection from the dead because amazingly enough, some of the Corinthians had begun to doubt or even deny that there is a resurrection from the dead. I mean, this is Christianity 101 stuff, but they were struggling with it. And so Paul wanted to make sure they understood death is not the end. There is a resurrection from the dead. And in verse 19, he writes these words. If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are, of all people, most to be pitied. Now, on the face of it, there seems to be a little bit of tension between what Jesus says in 10.10 and what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.19. Because Jesus, referencing his sheep, says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And when we look at the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15:19. his language almost seems to imply that believers are the most pitiful, miserable people in this world, and the only thing that makes up for that is the hope of resurrection and God's eternal kingdom and blessedness in God's eternal kingdom. Now, I don't think that's what he actually means, but a surface-level reading of it might lead one to that conclusion. Now, it is undeniable 
that the theme of suffering is very pronounced in the New Testament. I'm going to read you just a few passages to demonstrate my point this morning, but trust me, there are many, many more. Here are some of the key ones I decided to use. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross, which is an instrument of torture and death, and obviously in this particular context, a symbol of suffering. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, Peter's talking to a group of Christians in what's modern-day Turkey. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you shared Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So another very interesting verse, when you're undergoing fiery trials, that's normal. That's not strange. You should expect it. And then the last one I'm going to use is from Acts chapter 14, verse 22. I'm not going to read a full verse, but here the Apostle Paul says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And yet, for all the emphasis we find on suffering in the New Testament, and there are many other passages, trust me, read the New Testament for yourself. Don't take my word for it. When Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, I am convinced, and many others are as well, that he is talking about life right here, right now, in this present age. So we're left with something that's a little bit of a riddle because how can we have life, abundant life, in a fallen, broken world with pain and suffering? These two seem to conflict. How do we solve this? Well, I think the first step we need to take is to recognize that when Jesus uses the words abundant life, he does not mean a life of material abundance, what is sometimes called the prosperity gospel, the idea that Jesus came that we might be rich beyond our wildest dreams. And again, anybody who has really read the New Testament is not going to be deceived by that. Anybody who knows anything of early church history is not going to be deceived by that. That is obviously not what Jesus means. But just to make my point a little bit stronger, I'm going to go to the 16th chapter of Luke and read a little bit of a parable that Jesus gives that I think will shed further light on the subject. This is Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Now, let's just stop right there. How many people, if they had their choice, would voluntarily want to live like this? Now, we all know the Sunday school answer, and I don't have anything against Sunday school answers. They have their place, but we all know what we're supposed to say, but what do we really want? I mean, for most people, this is the dream. This guy is high up on the social pyramid. He's got really cool clothes, he's got tons of money, and he spends all his time partying with his friends. You know, this is someone who has made it right. Is that what Jesus is talking about when he says abundant life? No. We have to read on a little further. 
Verse 20. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now it goes on, but for the purposes of what I'm trying to tell you, that's as far as we need to go this morning. Now I have to admit that I myself am a bit of a hobbit. If you don't know what hobbits are, bless are you. But I am. And what I mean by that is I love material comfort. All right? I love being at home. I like big, comfortable chairs, especially when there's ice cream nearby. I like relaxing with my wife on Friday evenings and sitting on the couch and watching a movie. That suits me. That suits me right down to the ground. All right? But what we have to realize is that these material comforts, they are the seasoning of life, or sometimes even the spice of life, but they're not life. Now, seasoning is good if you have food to put it on, but you get your nourishment from the food. And of course, living in America, most of us are wealthy enough that we can fill our lives with enough earthly stuff and earthly pleasure to kind of conceal our spiritual hunger. But the consolations of materialism do not last forever. That's the point, one of the points of this parable. Sometimes material consolations don't even last throughout an entire lifetime. Sometimes people become weary of pleasure, people who have lived for pleasure. So abundant life doesn't mean life of material abundance. It's not even a sign of abundant life. So what is it? Well, here, to give us a picture, I think a good place to look is the book of Philippians. So I'm going to go to Philippians now. This is another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, chapter 4. Now I want to read to you a very well-known passage. In fact, we've already heard this morning. This is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, it's really crucial to recognize that when the Apostle Paul writes these words, he's writing in prison. He's in a prison. And we need to also remind ourselves, because Paul's in prison all the time. He's always getting beat up. And so we kind of forget that he's in prison unjustly. He didn't do anything wrong. He hasn't committed a crime. He's been unjustly prison, in prison, for following God's call on his life. And it actually reminds me a little bit of the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, right? Who had a similar situation where he was thrown into prison, 
for taking a moral stand, for doing what was right. And he was unjustly imprisoned for many, many years. And in the New Testament, we also see the same thing happen to John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, towards the end of his life, is thrown into prison and he never gets out. He's executed. And it's really interesting to look at the attitude of John the Baptist when he's in prison because his attitude makes more sense to a certain extent. When John's in prison, he's really disillusioned. He's really disappointed and even frustrated. He doesn't understand what's going on. He even sends his disciples to talk with Jesus about it because in his mind, he's thinking, okay, Jesus, I was with you on the front lines. I was proclaiming God's kingdom. We were doing this ministry thing together. And I was ready for God's kingdom of peace and righteousness to appear and fill the whole earth. And now I'm sitting in this prison and I'm rotting in this prison. What in the world is going on? Are you even the Messiah? This isn't justice. But we have to remember that John is pre-resurrection. And Paul is post-resurrection, and Paul's attitude doesn't make any sense. He's in jail, and he's writing these words. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. So it sounds like his contentment does not depend on his circumstance or his situation. It doesn't depend on the externals or the exterior. But if it doesn't depend on the exterior, it must depend on something interior. There's an inner strength. There's an inner vitality. There is life. And this is what it means to have life and to have it abundantly. We're just too blinded by our culture to see it. But I want to tell you that the Apostle Paul sitting in this prison was a freer man than most Americans are outside of prison. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 36, verse 9. Speaking of God, of course. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And when we really receive this into our understanding and into our hearts, it is totally liberating. This right here is a game changer to recognize and believe that the source of life is not the world, it is God. Because again, we get so focused on appearances and externals that we have distorted ideas of what freedom are, and we have distorted ideas of what strength is. So from a secular point of view, freedom means being able to do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. And the more you can do that, the more free you are, and sometimes the more powerful you are. But let's just think about this just from a rational perspective for a minute. If I can only be content when, all, when everything is going my way, and all of my preferences are being met, if that's the only time I can be content, is that strength or is that weakness? Now, there's nothing wrong with having preferences. I've got preferences. When my wife and I go out to eat, I don't open up the menu and go, okay, what's the most expensive, expensive disgusting thing on this menu? That's what I'm going to order. <laughs> it's, it's okay to have preferences, but the question is, how do we respond when those preferences aren't met. 
Because the list of material things we need to be content according to Scripture is shockingly small. I want to show you a verse from 1 Timothy. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Again, this is the Apostle Paul. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So he doesn't even put shelter on the list. I mean, come on, Paul, how good is the weather where you're writing? But even if... Let's just add shelter in there. So he says, you've got shelter, you've got f- clothing, you've got food, you've got everything you need material-wise. In terms of your material needs, you have everything you need to be content. So why are we so discontent? What, what's the reason? And I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, I've got troubles. I've got problems. And my, at work, at home, there are frustrations, there are these irritations, there are these troubles, and they're like, vampires that just, they suck the vitality right out of me. I just can't wait for the weekend to come when I can just crash and relax, go do something fun, whatever it may be. Now, of course, there are things we can do to manage the amount of trouble we have in our life, right? Because sometimes that those problems are the result of our own sinful stupidity. And when that's the case, then we need to do things to make our lives a little bit more manageable, right? It's not wise to create problems for yourself you don't need to deal with. And similarly, if you're in a legitimately abusive situation, you need to get out of the situation immediately. You need to get out of that. But here's the deal. I got, I'm a dad. I've got three kids at my house, ages five and under. And there's a lot of literature, you find this out when you become a parent, there's a lot of literature on how to parent correctly. And there are a lot of experts, and there are a lot of classes, and again, there is some good stuff, and I haven't read it all, I admit I have not read it all. But what I have read, I've seen this glaring omission that really kind of frustrates me almost, because if I ever wrote a parenting book, which I probably won't, but it's going to be very short, it's going to be one chapter, one sentence, and this is going to be the book. You're going to open it up and it's going to say, sometimes parenting is just tough, period. End of book, end of story. Okay, because it doesn't matter what you do, sometimes it's tough. Even if you are doing everything right, you are going to have trouble sometime. I mean, this morning when we're getting ready, I'm holding my two-year-old daughter and I'm sitting there, with, or standing there, holding my two-year-old daughter, I'm with my wife, and my son, he's three, he gets into his head, This is the opportune moment to high-five my dad's groin. And he he does it. And and by the way, if that's the only thing that goes wrong, that's a good morning. That's that's a great day. If that's the only thing, that's like nothing. I mean, really, if you've got small kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the thing is, we've got to be realistic. You are never going to have a trouble-free life. It's not going to happen. You're going to have problems. You're going to have troubles. You can move. You can change jobs. Do whatever. There will be new problems there waiting for you. So the question is not how do I manage my life to get rid of all these troubles. It's where am I getting the strength to face those troubles. I need more life. And that's why we got to enter that gate. we got to go through that door because that's where the pasture is. 
And God can feed us His divine truth. And He can feed us His divine goodness. And we can have the strength to overcome, right? In this life you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. Because I have overcome the world. And that's the picture of Christian life in a fallen world. It's not a house on the beach, right? Jesus talked about this. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, you're building your house on the beach, that's really stupid. It's prime real estate, it's worth a lot of money. And actually, this happens in the world. I mean, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some people have built houses on the beach. And then their houses sink into the beach, into the ocean. And he says, you can't do that. That's not smart because you're just assuming, you're assuming the weather's always going to be good. You're assuming the sun's always going to be shining. You're assuming it's always going to be 72. And that's not the way it is in this world. Sometimes it is. Sometimes the weather is good, but you have to build your house on a rock, on the foundation of Christ, because sometimes it will lightning, and it will storm, and it will thunder, and if you're on that foundation, you will stand, because you have the divine power of Christ to stand on. So that's the foundation that we need. And I just recently, this year, came across the story of a woman named Teresa Lesur. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. It's French. She's a French woman, and she lived towards the end of the 19th century. She was born in 1873, and she died at the age of 24 of tuberculosis. And back then, if you got tuberculosis, that was basically a death sentence. They didn't really know how to treat it. So if you got tuberculosis, you knew you were going to die. And she wrote an autobiography called The Story of a Soul. And there's a passage she writes while she's dealing with, she's a very young woman, she's dealing with tuberculosis, she knows that she's dying. And I just want to read to you some of the things she pens down here in her autobiography. It seems to me at the moment that there is nothing to prevent my flying away because I desire nothing at all now except to love until I die of love. I am free. I am not afraid of anything. Not even of what I used to dread most of all, a long illness which would make me a burden to the community. I am perfectly content to go on suffering in body and soul for years if that would please God. I am not in the least afraid of living for a long time. I am ready to go on fighting. The Lord is the rock upon which I stand. And then she quotes Psalm 143. He teaches my hands to fight and my fingers to war, end quote. He is my protector, and I have hoped in him. And then a little bit later she writes, I am ill, and I shall never get better, but my soul always remains at peace. For a long time now, I have not belonged to myself. I have given myself entirely to Jesus. He is free to do with me whatever he likes. That is freedom. And it's so powerful, and I... You know, I'm using some extreme examples this morning. I understand that. I mean, the Apostle Paul being in prison for preaching the gospel and then this young lady here dying of tuberculosis. And so, would I respond in the same way if I were thrown into prison for preaching this morning or if I were dying of an untreatable disease? I don't know. I have my doubts. But I do know this. I want to be like them. What they've got, I want it. And if you just have the desire, it's such a small step, it's a huge step at the same time. If you can just have the desire 
you can really move forward and God can work with that. The problem is a lot of people don't really want it. Now that sounds incredible, but let me tell you something. I am a teacher. I teach at high school and I've actually all my adult life have been dealing with teenagers and that's not by design. That's just the way it worked out. Teenagers are interesting people. That's a different sermon. But I, I deal with them a lot on a regular basis. And um, one, one day I'm in class, and I've got a girl in my class, and I, like, I want to ask her a question. This was not like something that I had uh, previously thought up. It's just kind of in the moment. I asked her, look, if you had your choice between being unattractive but perfectly happy every day of your life or... You could be attractive but bipolar every day for the rest of your life. What would you choose? Now, I think you can see where I'm going with this. This happened to be a pretty young lady. And she said, and she was being totally sincere. She was even a little bit sad when she responded. She said, you know, I'd just rather be attractive and bipolar. And, you know, she was just being honest. I mean, God bless her. She was, she was just telling me the, what she really wanted. At least she knew what she really wanted. A lot of people don't even know that. But I'm not judging her or condemning her because she's not alone. This is what George MacDonald has to say about this. Man finds it hard to get what he wants because he does not want the best. God finds it hard to give because he would give the best and man will not take it. In other words, every day, every moment, our Heavenly Father wants to give us His very best. But we don't take it because we have different ideas of what is best. And so we go with our ideas instead. And sometimes we learn to be content with that. And that's really dangerous. I mean, I started this talk about... I started my talk and I talked about the dangers of being too easily discontent. But there's also another kind of subtle danger that we face, and that's of being too easily content. Now, that's not the Apostle Paul. When you read him in Philippians chapter 4, that contentment was the bloom or the fruit on a vine that was rooted in God's divine love. But when I learn to be content with what is good, to the extent that I no longer desire what is best, then I am in a dangerous position. And think about this. You probably know people that don't know God and that don't believe in God. And are they all of them lining up to jump off a bridge this morning? Are they all clinically depressed? Some of them might be. But there are a lot of people that don't know God. And they are pleasant, successful, law-abiding citizens, you know, and they have troubles just like everybody else, but they learn to take their licks, roll with the punches, and they just live life as best they can. And by the way, that's admirable. I mean, the person in that situation who has at least learned to be grateful, that person is in a better position than the malcontent who's never grateful, no matter how much they have. But it's dangerous. Being lukewarm is dangerous. And the tragic thing about it is you don't necessarily have to sacrifice what is good to strive for and want what is best. You can follow the good shepherd and still enjoy coffee and music and burritos and holidays. There's nothing inconsistent with loving Jesus and loving these things. The problem is when these things become substitutes for God. 
And in that case, then you really are in danger of losing them. Because if you're going to do that, God might take your toys away from you. And that could happen in this country. I mean, you remember what Jesus said about the flood. And Noah, he said people were partying and having a good time right up until the day the flood came. And so it's serious business. There's a sense of urgency here. We've got to desire what's best for ourselves. We've got to desire the fullness. We've got to want it. This is what the psalmist says, Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, you could ask the question, well, wait a minute. Isn't God omnipresent, right? He's present everywhere. And in a sense, that's true in that God knows what's happening all over the universe right now. And he's making things happen all over the universe right now as we speak. But there are a lot of people that don't care. You can be passively in God's presence and not and just completely ignore him. And that's obviously not what the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about someone that is actively in God's presence, actively, deliberately coming to the fountain of life. And this is what this individual says. He testifies, this is where the fullness of joy is. It's not at the golf course. It's not on a lake. It's not on a cruise ship. It's not in the mall or Amazon.com. The fullness of joy is not about being at the right place at the right time. It's about being with the right person wherever you are. And he says, this is life right here. This is the good life. And we need to remember that even though there may be and are you know, people who are more spiritually mature than we are, like the Apostle Paul or like Therese, it's not like they have some VIP access to God that we don't have. We All of us have access. Access has been granted to all of us. That's the meaning of that story in the book of Matthew where the temple veil is torn in half, right? The temple veil was separated the holiness, the holiest of holies from the outside. And God was saying, guess what, everybody? Access granted. Everybody who wants to drink, you come. Anybody who wants to taste the fountain of life, you come. Access is granted to everybody. But just because we have equal access doesn't mean we take equal advantage of it. And that's the real tragedy. It's there. And so I just want to encourage you this morning as I close. Don't buy into the idea that materialism can bring you ultimate fulfillment. That is a thief that has come to kill and steal. But the Lord has come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, we thank you that you allow us to gather here in this place and worship your name. And we pray that in each of our hearts, Lord, that you would give us that desire. Give us the desire for the fullness of life that can only be found in you. I pray that for all of us here, that we will leave this place loving you more. And that you will grant us the best of everything you want to give us. In the righteous name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.